Just before I get started on this message this morning, when I was blow-drying my hair this morning, I just felt the Holy Spirit drop a couple of words into my spirit. And one of them was that there's a man here who's really been toying with the idea of going to Bible college, and you think, oh, that's just me. It's not you. I really believe that's God putting that on your heart. And the other thing was there's the lady who just thinks, I'm not a good mum, I'm just not a good mum, and you keep saying that to yourself all the time. You are a good mum, and God's grace is sufficient for you to deal with whatever you need to. You're a good mum. So the title of this morning is The Power of a New Perspective. 2020, a new year. It's a leap year. I love leap years because I get to have a birthday for the first time in four years. <laughs> 2019 has gone. There's nothing we can do to change that year. 2019 is history and 2021 is a mystery. We only have this year. And this year is made up of 366 days in which Jesus tells us to take them one day at a time. But it only takes one moment in one day to decide to get a new perspective on our Christian living. But that decision can change our lives. There is so much power in taking on a new perspective. And we must always remember that that power is God's power. I've made a list of 10 aspects of our Christian living which we can approach with a new perspective. Now, I know 10 things, there's a lot of things to take in. You're not meant to take take everyone personally, but when you listen, as the Holy Spirit touches your heart, take that thing and take it home and pray about that and work through that particular aspect that you feel is really speaking to you. So we start with number one. Proverbs 4 verse 23 says, this is about changing your thinking. Proverbs says, be careful how you think. Your life is shaped by your thoughts. We get a new perspective on our Christian life by first and foremost changing the way we think. Our thinking has to change from natural thinking to spiritual thinking Natural thinking is on the level of earth, the level of man. Spiritual thinking is on a completely different level. It's God's level. It's surprising that many Christians think naturally about their problems rather than spiritually. And even the psalmist, was, he was a good and godly man, but often when he was under the pressure of circumstances, he would just revert back to thinking naturally. We will never learn to live effectively until we understand that the whole of life is spiritual, not just parts of it. The difference between natural thinking and spiritual thinking is as different as heaven and earth. The more we think about our life in the terms of spiritual things, the less perplexed we will be. Much of the turmoil we go through in life comes about because we do not see life as a whole. Natural thinking is notoriously partial and incomplete. So let's start this year by changing the way we think. There's power in a new perspective. Number two, press on. In Philippians 3, verse 12 to 14, Paul likens the Christian life to a race. He says, Not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, 
But I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Mike and I enjoy watching the Olympics on television. Not all of it, but we really love the swimming and the track athletics. As we watch history being made and new records being set, it's obvious that it takes more than just skill for an Olympian to become successful. It takes determination, it takes dedication, it takes a can-do attitude. It takes a willingness to, to just let go of all the past failures and defeat. It takes great determination and resolve to try again and again and again until you succeed. And that's exactly what it takes for us to be champions in life. All of us have faced defeats in the past. Maybe your emotions have injured you. You have experienced a devastating setback in a relationship, in your health, your finances or a job. You might have struggled with an addiction. Regardless of your past defeats, there is good news. You are not disqualified from the race of life. You may have missed plan A for your life, but God has a plan B, a plan C, a plan D. He has whatever it takes to get you moving forward into the plan he has prepared for you. He promises to get you across the finish line and onto the winner's platform. Start your training by by deciding to forget what lies behind. Many people don't understand what it means to forget the past. They wonder, how can I forget something that's happened to me? But the word forget in this instant means to disregard intentionally or overlook. You have to intentionally disregard your past so that it doesn't stop you from moving forward. That means the good and the bad. Sometimes our victories keep us from rising higher just as much as our failures do. If we don't let go of the old, we'll never be able to embrace the new. It doesn't matter what's happened in your history, it's time to forget what lies behind and look forward to the future that God has planned for you. It's a bit like the monkey bars in the playground. I often think of this, you know, you move from one bar to another to another, but you know what? You can't get hold of the next bar until you let go of the previous one. First things first, number three. In Matthew 6, verse 33, Jesus tells us to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. People who experience joy, blessings, and favour of the Lord are different in one area. They put God on top of their list. They put the most important things there. If you want to experience God's best, and when I'm talking you, I'm talking preaching to myself as well, it's just to make it more personal. If you want to experience God's best, put your relationship with him on the top of the list. Stay focused on him and the things that really matter. The Bible says to first aim at and then to strive at God's righteousness. In other words, we must do the things we know that are right those things that God has instructed us to do. 
What are you aiming at and striving for in life today? Are you seeking first his kingdom? Am I seeking first his kingdom? The Bible says that his kingdom is righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. When you seek God's righteousness, which is God's way of doing things, you are seeking the kingdom. And just as this verse says, when you make God's kingdom a priority, all things will be given to you. Well, what are all these things? Well, it's everything else. It's provision, it's health, it's strength, it's guidance, it's direction. It's whatever you need to live that abundant life that Jesus promised you he would give you. If you've been putting other things first, you can change your perspective right now. Put the kingdom first, and as you do, you'll begin to experience joy and peace like you've just never felt before. We really don't have to seek after God's blessings. If we will seek God first and honour him with our life, the blessings just seem to pour in. When we live a life of integrity, when we strive for excellence, giving, serving, treating people right, God's blessings will just chase you down. You can't outrun the good things of God when you have a heart to serve him and to honour him. Number four, step out of the boat. Matthew 14 verse 28 says, Then Peter called to him, Lord, if it's really you, tell me to come to you walking on the water. Why did Peter decide to get out of the boat? Why did he all of a sudden think he could walk on water? Or you might say because he saw Jesus open the eyes of the blind, cleanse the lepers and all the other miraculous things he did. Well, that's true, but all the other disciples who were in the boat with Peter that night had all seen those same things too. So why? Well, first of all, Peter believed that Jesus was who he claimed to be. He fixed his eyes on Jesus, not on himself. He stirred up his faith. At that moment, his insides ignited and he believed he could do what God placed in his heart. Jesus said, or Jesus asked, Peter, do you want to get out of the boat? Peter said, yes, I do. Well, Peter stepped out of the boat and he walked on water. Many people say, yeah, but he sank, he went under. That's true, but nobody else ever walked on water like he did. Some of us need to be as bold as Peter. We just can't sit around in the boat waiting for something to happen. Jesus is calling us to step out, to be proactive. Combine your faith with action. Say things like, it's my time to come up to a new level. It's my time to accomplish my dreams. It's my time to step out and break these bad habits. This is your season of blessing. It's time to step out of the boat. When you have that kind of attitude, you are saying in effect what Peter said, God, can I come to you? Notice what Jesus said. He said, Peter, I like your attitude of faith. I like the fact that you believe you can do great things. Come on out. Number five. Mark 5 verse 34 says, And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Your suffering is over. This story is an oldie but a goodie. This verse describes the woman who had been sick for 12 years. One day she heard that Jesus was coming to town and when she saw all the people around him, she thought, I'll never get to him. 
It's so crowded. I'm so weak. I just don't think I can do this. But instead of dwelling on those negative thoughts, she started reminding herself, if I can just touch the edge of his robe, I'm going to be made whole. She kept pressing her way through the crowd until she got just close enough to touch his robe. And when she did, she was made completely whole. What's interesting is that Jesus actually felt her touch of faith. It was a touch of faith and expectancy, and it impacted Jesus. It's our faith that opens the door to activate God's power. What have you been believing for? Don't give up. Press through. Years may have passed, but just like this woman, keep asking, keep praying, keep seeking. God is faithful. As you press through, he'll meet your faith with his miraculous power and you'll step forward into the victory that he has planned for you. Number six, a right heart. Luke 7 verse 47 says, I tell you, her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven, for she has shown me much love, but a person who is forgiven little loves little. My grandfather was a bricklayer. He had these beautiful tools to make sure the grout was all nice and smooth. And when I was about seven or so, I was at my grandparents' house in the back of his porch. He just had a few old brick tiles. And some of the grout was starting to look like it was starting to wear a bit. So I got my little friend, Eric, my age, and we went to the local store and, and put, put it on the family tab because that's what normally the parents sent the kids to do. So we got a couple of packets of margarine. We got my grandfather's tools out and we carefully put all the margarine in between all the grout joints of all the bricks on the back porch. Well, when they came back, they just looked and cleaned up the mess. They never said a word. And I wonder how many times God does that for us. We make a mess, we make some poor choices, but because our heart is right, God causes everything to work for, good, for us for good. The story found here in Luke 7 is the perfect example of how God looks at our heart rather than our mistakes. When Mary rolled up, everyone in the district, everyone in the, at the dinner knew that she lived in the red light district and they knew her past. She had an expensive jar of perfume which she poured on Jesus' feet. She cleaned his feet and kissed them and dried them with her hair. The religious leaders began to complain about her unworthiness, but Jesus just answered them back with a story and put them in their place. Mary had had a rough past, but because her heart was right, she didn't have to have a future that was rough as well. She spent years making wrong choices, going down the wrong path. But somehow Mary understood the mercy of God. She understood that her present circumstances didn't need to be her permanent destiny. She knew she could come to Jesus just as she was, and that day she left a changed woman. God can make miracles out of your mistakes too. With a right heart, he will bring you out of the mess and cause you to rise up higher into the destiny that he has planned for you.
making peace. Number seven. Genesis 13 verse 8 says, Finally Abraham said to Lot, Let's not allow this conflict to come between us and our herdsmen. After all, we are close relatives. God calls us to be peacemakers. When we hear his voice, we need to respond. Don't wait until it's too late to make amends with people you feel estranged from. Do it today. Swallow your pride and apologise, even if it wasn't your fault. Keep the peace. It's not always about being right. It's about keeping strife out of your life. If you wait around for somebody else to be the peacemaker in your life, you may wait around for the rest of your life, living your life on hold. Peace starts with you, and it's wise to make the first move. Be the bigger person. When you do that, God will make it up to you. Now, Abraham had moved to a new land with his nephew Lot. The land wasn't big enough for both of them. So the Bible says that Lot's herdsmen began to have strife with Abraham's herdsmen. But Abraham dealt with the situation immediately. He knew if he allowed the friction to continue, it would not only affect the herdsmen, but it would affect his relationship with Lot as well. And then eventually it would just affect the whole family. So Abraham took the high road and let Lot choose the best piece of land. Interesting, isn't it? Abraham willingly allowed Lot to take advantage of him, even though Abraham was the elder gentleman and should have been able to choose first. Sometimes, no matter how much it hurts, you may have to let the other person do it their way, just to avoid conflict. It may not be fair. You may know beyond a doubt that you are right and they are wrong, but that doesn't matter. Let it go and trust God to make good out of it. Number eight, excellent living. First Corinthians 12 verse 31 says, But let me show you a way of life that is best of all. It doesn't matter what your gifts are, what your skills are, how talented you are, the best way to live is filtered through God's love. The Bible says that God is love. He doesn't just have love, he is love. When you invite Jesus to be the Lord of your life, the Bible says that he actually takes up residence within your heart. When you cooperate with God and submit your will to his, you are allowing his perfect love to, th- to flow through you. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 tells us what love looks like. When we are walking in God's love, we are patient, we are kind, we keep no record of wrong. That's simply forgiveness. Love always forgives. That doesn't mean the other person was right. It only means that you are choosing to let go of the bitterness, hurt and anger. Love looks for ways to improve someone else's life. Love brings out the best in other people. When you get up in the morning, why not ask yourself, who can I encourage today? Who can I build up? Someone in your life needs encouragement. Someone in your life needs building up. As you ask the Lord to show him creative ways to encourage those around you, and as you sow seeds of encouragement and bring out the best in others, you will be living most surely the most excellent way. Forgiveness. Number nine. I only got two to go, but the number nine is a bit longer than the others. Okay, forgiveness. Colossians 3 verse 13 says, Forgive as God forgave you. 
We've touched on this topic, but it's so important. Psychologists and counsellors agree worldwide that the number one issue people present with is unforgiveness. It's not only the cause of much mental anguish, but it also affects the physical well-being. Unforgiveness stops people in their tracks, and until they forgive, they will never move on. In fact, they often move backwards. I was reminded of this during the week when I was trying to water my plants outside and there was this kink in the, in the hose and not a drop of water would come out. I thought, Lord, this is a bit like when we are unwilling to forgive. It's like your Holy Spirit can't flow through us because of this kink, this unforgiveness, just stops God working in our life. Two things regarding forgiveness. Firstly, a statement and then an example. The statement is, Unforgiveness is like drinking poison and then expecting your enemy to die. That's a very dramatic statement, I know, but it shows how unforgiveness will hurt you more than it will hurt the person that you are not forgiving. Okay, this is a bit, this is the hard bit for me. I'm going to tell you a story of forgiveness and I've kept notes on it so that I won't go off here or there. I'll just focus on the story to keep it short but it's a story of forgiveness. My natural father was a famous Hungarian musician and gypsy. During the early 50s, he travelled throughout Europe playing the violin. He had a brief affair with my mother and I was the result. Shortly after I was born, my my father agreed to meet my mother on a street corner. Apparently, he took one brief look at me and never returned. My mother decided to give me to another woman who lived in her village. This woman named me with the name I still have. A kind local policeman encouraged my mother to change her mind, telling her she would regret her decision. My mother changed her mind. My grandparents loved me very much and they became my primary caregivers until I was four. It was then that my mother met and married my stepfather. They took me away from my grandparents and my stepfather told my mother he was going to smack out of me all the spoiling my grandparents had done. This he did until I was about 12 years of age. My stepfather also decided I wasn't to see my grandparents for a very long time. I still remember missing them. My stepfather, I'll call him Dad from here on. My dad was a very nervous man with a short fuse and very big hands. He wasn't very bright. He was the youngest of 16 children. He believed in God. It was obvious he didn't like me very much. My mother told me it was probably because I reminded him that there had been another man in her life. My mum and dad had four boys who were greatly favoured. I loved my brothers and I fiercely protected them. I still love them heaps even though they sometimes drive me crazy. Apart from the beltings, Dad would do some very cruel things. Once when I was showing a friend one of the new puppies my dog had just delivered, the puppy squirmed and squirmed in my arms and I wasn't able to hang on to it and it fell to the ground. The puppy yelped a bit, but then it seemed fine. My dad became very angry with me. I still don't know why he was angry, but he became very angry and told me I had hurt it so badly he would have to drown it, which he did. 
He would often drown the offspring of our pets as soon as they were born. He would put them in a potato sack and put them in the laundry trough with bricks on the bag to stop the animals, to keep the animals underwater. On, one, on another occasion, he decided to kill a rabbit that I had looked after as a pet. He made my mother cook it. Then he forced me to eat it for dinner. I was very upset, but he yelled and yelled and yelled at me and told me I was nothing but a drama queen. One time, my dad's sister came from the city to spend a holiday with us. She soon discovered my dad's treatment of me and confronted him about the marks on my body. But nothing ever changed. I always treated him with respect, but I was afraid of him. He never encouraged me or helped me like he helped the boys. My dad also didn't protect me from harm. He didn't protect me from his own father, whom he knew was a sexual predator. He allowed my step-grandfather to take me into the fields on the pretense of cutting some grass for the rabbits, where he sexually assaulted me and hurt me. The police were called in, and as I was only eight years old and very embarrassed, I wasn't much help to the police. There is a lot more I could say, but to cut this story short, as soon as I turned 16, I left home to take care of myself. Taking a leap in time, about the time when my children were all still very young, I began to seek the Lord about my pain and resentments regarding my, my dad. I didn't want to carry these hurts and bad feelings about him, but I didn't know how to change things. One day I prayed. I remember so well praying this prayer. Lord, how am I going to deal with this situation with my dad? This isn't right. Help me, Lord. I clearly remember his reply. The Lord said, see the good in the man. It echoed in my head, see the good in the man. Dad was a hard worker. He worked in our local sawmill for many years. He took all the overtime he could get. He only kept a dollar out of his wages for himself and usually gave that money back to my mother by the end of the day, by the end of the week because she needed it for food. After a long hard day, he would load up the top of his push bike with a large sack filled with pieces of wood that he had collected from the mill during the day and he would walk the bike home, all the way home. We needed the wood because it was our only source of heating and cooking. He had the biggest, most beautiful vegetable and flower garden you could ever imagine. We were very poor and the vegetables kept us throughout the year. As I did what the Lord told me to do, to look for the good in the man, my heart's attitude began to change. So much so that when I sold a business at that time, I bought him an airline ticket so he could go back to Holland to see his family he hadn't seen for a long, long time. In fact, about 30 years. I also gave him enough spending money. I put the ticket and money in an envelope together with a note. The note read, Dear Dad, this is for all the years you worked so hard for me. Give me a minute. When he returned from his trip, everything had changed. He was so happy about what I had done for him. As for me, all my pain and resentments were totally gone and they have never returned, even though he's never expressed any remorse for what he did. From then on, we would sit in his garden drinking tea 
and talking plants and flowers and stuff. A few short years later, he was diagnosed with cancer of the stomach. His doctor wanted to do some exploratory surgery. I was in my dad's hospital room when he came back from surgery. The doctor came in a bit later to talk to him about the outcome of the surgery. He said to the doctor, don't tell me anything. You take my daughter into the corridor outside and tell her and she can tell me. He couldn't bear handling anything negative from the doctor, but he trusted me with his vulnerability. I told him as gently as I could that he only had three to six months to live and nothing further could be done for him. We only had a few more months. I was with him the evening he passed away and I cried most of the night. That was 30 years ago. I often think of myself sitting with him in his garden, drinking tea and talking plants and flowers and stuff, usually about the boys. The very old memories never come back. You know what? Sometimes I cry because I miss him. I've given you that as an example because it shows how unforgiveness can happen, what happens to people, why, why they become the way they do. But most of all, it shows that things can be overcome with God's help by giving God your situation. If you have unforgiveness, give it to God. Ask him, how do I change this? And he will show you. Number 10, moving from discontentment to contentment. The apostle learned how to be content. In Philippians 4, verse 11 to 13, he says, I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. Life is full of mountaintops and valleys. I believe contentment is possible no matter what our lot in life is. Any dissatisfaction can become a really bad habit if we don't aggressively pursue joy. When we become discontented or dissatisfied and show it by murmuring and grumbling and always looking for fault in everything, it's an insult to the Lord. He says, I'm in charge of your life. I've got a good plan for you and I'm working out everything for your good. My ways are above your ways. My thoughts are above your thoughts. You may not understand what I'm doing, but trust me. He wants us to show him that we trust him. To trust him is to stop looking for reasons to be discontented. Consider the negatives of discontentedness. Habitual resentment leads to an unsatisfactory life. Constant feelings or displays of discontentment can be very distressing for you and those around you. Being satisfied brings joy. Being dissatisfied brings torment. Somewhere in the process of all this, we need to learn how to be content while we're on the way to where we're going. Like Paul, we can learn to be satisfied to the point we are not disturbed. I like this saying, contentment is not the fulfilment of what I want, but the realisation of how much I already have. Contentment won't fall into our laps. We have to go for it. We are going to have to learn to make decisions that result in contentment. Paul's young friend Timothy once said, "Contentment, godliness with contentment is great gain. Contentment is found in the Lord's presence. 
The Psalms proclaim that the fullness of joy is in God's presence. Psalm 16 verse 11 says, You have made known to me the path of life. You fill me with joy in your presence. God desires to bring about a lot of change. He achieves us by bringing us into his presence and revealing to us his word. There we discover that our greatest problems are not those that are outside of us but in us. Our perspectives are wrong. Real change comes about when our feelings are soothed. Not when our feelings are soothed, but when our thinking is changed. When we take on a new perspective, changed thinking leads to changed desires. And when our perspectives are controlled by the word and not the world, then as surely as night follows day, we will experience joy and inner peace. So there's a lot of things there, isn't there? I know, I've given you a lot of things. But if there's a few things there that the Lord has placed on your heart, maybe those things you can take away quietly and speak to him. Or if you want to talk to one of the pastoral care team about anything, we're always here for you. So, summary. We can change change your thinking, press on and put the past behind, put God first, step out of the boat, press through, have a right heart attitude, make peace, live a life of excellence through love, forgive and move from discontentment to contentment. On that note, I'll leave you with another piece of music which Sarah and I found at work. A lot of our customers were listening in and wondering what we were about, but I hope it blessed them too. There's a challenge in that song, and I always encourage um, that when God does challenge us, it's not um, without his support and his empowerment and equipping as well as we do take the step. Willie, thanks um, for sharing with us this morning. Um, yeah, some, some deep deep issues and uh, some, some great uh, things to focus on, I think, particularly uh, with the year ahead of us. Um, yeah, just, just trust you'll be able to grasp hold of a few of those 10 points. Um, yeah, so thanks again, Willie. Uh, that's um, the conclusion of our time here together now. Uh, if you've come for wanting prayer today or there's something in Willie's message or it's occurred today that you'd like to stand with someone to pray, um, our prayer team will be uh, just located to my left over here. Um, there's uh, an opportunity to share together over a cup of tea and coffee and a biscuit as well in the in the the room just to the left on on the, just before you go out as well. So just encourage you to stick around for a chat. Sam, I'm wondering whether you might like to jump up again. You look like it, so I'll invite you to do that. Thanks, Wayne. Um, yeah, just uh, again, really uh, blessed by Willie's message. And as she said, there's there's so many things in there, but I really encourage uh, everyone in this this room to just whether it just be one thing um, to take forward from here and and to use it and ask God to to actually work in your life. Um, and and on that notion, just a reminder that next week is actually a really important day day in the life of our church. I'm really believing uh, that we're, we've got a vision uh, that's going to be. Uh, that God is at work in, because uh, even in in Willie's song there at the end, uh, just a reminder that um, it's really on theme with with the things that we're really wanting to share for this year. So I uh, really encourage you to be here next week, and I really encourage you to um, be thinking about what God is doing in your life uh, and how God is shaping you, and um, particularly 
what a blessing it is to have Willie who heads up our pastoral care uh, ministry. And if there's anything that's been shared this morning that's awakened in you, I really encourage you to actually seek out the pastoral care team because they are here as a ministry to serve you, to bless you, to pray for you, to work through things. If there are things in in your life that you perhaps can't come down on a Sunday morning or you can't talk to someone over a coffee over, there is an awesome opportunity to meet during the week with someone from the pastoral care team uh, to really uh, bless you and pray for you and to work through perhaps some of one of these 10 points that the Lord has uh, placed on your heart this morning. So uh, may the, the Lord bless you. And uh, we really look forward to next week as we gather together and share the vision for what God is going to do amongst us this year. May the Lord bless you. Amen.